Hello, Barmanco recently held a webinar looking at the effects of the COVID-19 virus on Australian farmers and what it means for them. Hosted by Eric Nankerville, we have some keynote speakers, Ross Kingwell, Cheryl Gordon and May Connolly. We hope you enjoy. Although the speakers are referring to slides during their presentations, persevere in the podcast because the main messages are spoken and you'll be able to understand as you listen. Ross Kingwell, very well known to a lot of us in uh, Western Australia particularly, um, uh, but he's been the author of uh, numerous, uh, numerous papers and journals. Uh, in addition to leading AGIC's economics and business analysis team, Ross is a professor uh, in the School of Agricultural Resource Economics at the University of Western Australia and was formerly Chief Economist in the Department of Agriculture and Food in uh, Western Australia. And we've um, charted um, Ross to give us uh, an overview about higher uh, grains at a strategic level. Um, and uh, there's obviously a couple of things uh, that we're loving to cover, and it's a pretty short time period to uh, to tackle it. Uh, in your 10 minutes, uh, Ross, so I yeah, really appreciate you making the time, um, and uh, I'll let you get underway. Just give us a yell, we want me to change the slide. Sure. Okay, Eric, let's go to the first slide. So this slide, don't worry about the title so much, but it's a chart that tracks from the early 1990s through to the almost 2019. It tracks what's happened to agri-food trade globally, and it also tracks global growth as measured by the percentage change in gross domestic product. So global growth back in the early 1990s was around about 2%, and it followed an upward trajectory. In the mid-2000s, global GDP growth peaked around about 5.5%. And then the global financial crisis hit and world economic growth in terms of the increase of gross domestic product plummeted. And it took easily two to three years for the global economy to recover its growth. And yet, and that, that's the light blue line, and yet if you have a look at the dark blue line, what's interesting about that is that despite the turmoil of the global financial crisis, global agri-food trade sailed on, almost seemingly unaltered. Now, of course, it was altered and, and some commodities were impacted more than others. But what I, I want to draw your attention to is the fact that, yes, the global financial crisis, as the word suggests, was a financial crisis, and we're in a health crisis, but there's similar ramifications to the GFC insofar as the COVID is causing a reduction in the spending power of households. People are losing jobs, their incomes are being stripped away, they're changing what it is that they can spend their money on. And one of the things that they don't alter their expenditure on much is food. And that's, that's the good news for Australian agriculture. You're in the business of making the key ingredients for food. And food is a really stable commodity. Every household needs it. And if you're rich or poor, you've got a stomach to be filled, you've got a family to feed. And so that trade continues. And that's something that farmers need to be aware of, that they're in the business of producing largely a food commodity that the world will keep on needing. You're not in the business of leisure, you're not in the business of entertainment, you're in the business of food production and that's a pretty secure sector to be in. 
Okay, next slide. Oops, sorry, that must be effective on my chat box, I think. Can you do a down arrow or up arrow? No, oh, it stopped working. So I'll tick. Okay. I'll stop. So, so while, while Eric is just sorting out that, I guess one of the things to bear in mind is that what determines food trade and consumption is both the, the number of people in the world and their incomes. And both those things are only increasing. So we are fortunate in agriculture to be producing commodities that are going to be increasingly demanded because world population is growing and so are incomes. And the main product that we grow in Australia is wheat. And we're fortunate that the most frequent use of wheat is in food products. So about 70% of the wheat that is produced is sold and used in food production. Only about 20 to 25% is actually used for feed. And we know that what's happened as a result of the COVID is that people have stopped traveling and because they've stopped traveling, they're using less fuel. And in countries like the US, where corn is produced in order to go into ethanol production that then goes into transport fuels, the demand for ethanol is much reduced because the demand for fuel has diminished. And so that corn that normally would have gone into ethanol now has to make its way into feed markets. And that's a global phenomenon that wherever you have biofuels that are dependent on a, a grain feed stock, then that grain feed stock price is diminishing. And so even a, a main crop like wheat that primarily goes into food, its price is under pressure because up to a quarter of all the wheat produced goes into feed and there's lots of feed grain available. There's lots of corn that ordinarily would have gone into energy is going into feed. So the outlook for some of the grain prices is much more subdued. And so we're having the consequence of a reduced demand, even for some of the grains that we produce like wheat, and that will be showing up in less price growth and, and in most cases diminish prices. So let, let's move on, Eric. So the, I guess the good news is the main crop we produce wheat goes into food, but we also produce sheep, wool and cattle. And I, I'm afraid the news there, particularly for wool, is not so good because wool is not a food commodity, of course. It's subject to people's discretion. So people can choose to not buy as they are, to replenish their wardrobes. And so the demand for wool has been reduced substantially. So in Western Australia, for example, the current wool price last week, the Western market indicator was 1246 cents. That's down 40% from the high over the last 12 months. So that's a huge price reduction in wool that's been experienced over the last 12 months. The Eastern market indicator currently in US dollar terms is now the lowest it's been for a decade. So wool is being hammered and that's being hammered because people's household budgets are being slashed globally and people are reducing their purchases of discretionary commodities such as wool. Want to move on, Eric? So the, the story for sheep and cattle is similar, um, but, but less so. Young heifers uh, and, and ewe lambs are being highly demanded, so their prices 
are, are keeping up. So just here's the key points about wool. They've fallen significantly and could worsen. 50% of wool has been passed in at auction. 300,000 bales already stockpiled. Uh, unless sheep are sold and not replaced, wool production is going to continue. And there's lots of farmers in Eastern Australia and Western Australia who are looking to rebuild their sheep flocks. So they're not going to be quitting their sheep. Uh, they're going to be needing to shear them. So there's a lot more wool that's going to come onto the market and that supply will continue, but because demand has diminished, uh, the, that's going to show up in reduced prices for wool. Okay, let's continue on. Okay, this is the comment that I was talking about earlier. This is a, a chart that shows along the bottom people's individual wealth. So every box on this chart is a country and it charts the per capita wealth of each person in that country with the country taken as a whole. And then on the vertical axis is how much people in those countries are spending on food and non-alcoholic beverages. And the point of this chart is to show you that as a country gets richer, as people get richer, they spend more on food and non-alcoholic beverages. And globally, as we recover from COVID, people are going to be shifting from left to right on that chart. They're going to gradually get richer, and as they gradually get richer and recover, they're going to increase their expenditure on food and non-alcoholic beverages. And that's a global observation, and again, that's a really good news story. To give you a nitty-gritty example, um, in Indonesia, over the next decade, their population is going to increase by the current size of Australia's population. Indonesia's wealth is going to grow so much that over the next few decades, they're going to become the fifth most wealthy nation on the globe. Now, that, that doesn't mean they are individually going to be the fifth wealthiest people on the globe, but as a nation, they will be. And so as there are more Indonesians, as they become more wealthy, they're on our doorstep, they will be spending more on exactly the sort of commodities we produce in Australia. That is wheat, feed grains, beef. And that's, that's a good news story for Australia on our doorstep. And that story is being replicated in Southeast Asia. Okay, let's move on, Eric. So I'm, I'm getting towards the end of the presentation here. So the, the story you can see that I'm painting is one that although we're going to have these really severe short-term consequences, and you can move on to the next one if you want to, to Eric. Um, and to save time, let, let's move on to the next one as well. Okay, let's finish with this one. The, the story I want to finish with is the story that when you look at the sorts of commodities we mostly produce in Australian agriculture. We produce a lot of grains and we produce a lot of beef and we produce a fair bit of wool and sheep meat. And again, the, the good news story for us is that as people get richer, they eat more meat. And the meats that they are increasingly eating are meats that depend on grain. Now, in a way, what this chart is trying to, to show is that there's been a, a transformation in the meat eating habits of Australians. We still eat the same amount of meat. So each Australian eats between about 100 to 110 kilograms of meat each year but the composition of our meat has hugely altered. If you, 
went back to the 1970s, this chart shows that beef and sheep were the two main meats that households used to consume. If you fast forward to now, the two main meats that people eat in Australia are chicken and pork, followed by beef and then sheep meat. So we've completely switched in our meat eating preferences. Globally, the main meats that people eat are pork and chicken. And the thing to note about that is that as people get richer, they're going to eat more of those meats, plus they'll, they'll eat some red meat in addition. But the important thing to note about pork and chicken is that they're grain-fed meats. So now people are eating meats that depend on grain. In Australia, if you went back to the 1970s, the meats that we used to eat didn't depend on grain. They were beef and sheep. They just were meat produced by grazing, not by feeding grain. Whereas now, increasingly, people are eating meats that depend on grain. And again, that's a great news story for Australia because we have an environment that is particularly suited to growing grain. And both within Australia and on our doorstep, there's going to be increasing numbers of people eating exactly those sorts of meats that will depend on grains. And, and so that's, that's the good news story that I think will drive strategically Australian agriculture forward. Yes, the next 12 months to 24 months is going to be really bumpy and there's going to be some short-term economic pain, but the fundamentals are really favourable good news stories for Australian agriculture. And I guess that's what I want to emphasise, that you are in an industry with a really rich strategic future. So that's it, uh, Eric. Very good. Um, thanks, Ross. Sorry, I've uh, got a bit of a hold up every now and then uh, there. So um, look, I, I turned my chat box on and that's what uh, stopped everything else from working. So I haven't been following any questions. Are there any questions there, Ben? Has anyone got a question for- None, none uh, in the chat Ross? box, Eric. Okay, um, anyone got any questions at all uh, for Ross? Good, we're all a bit shy tonight. Um, uh, Ross, question of Lawrence Carslake here. Ross, how are you going? Um, Ross, given that um, barley is a feed grain and there's a lot going on, mm. what's your take? Yeah, good question, Lawrence. Um, it's, it's pretty obvious that assuming China does go ahead with its imposition of these tariffs and, and there's no economic justification, to my mind, for the imposition of those tariffs. But uh, so my judgment is that underpinning that decision is politics, not rational economics with respect to I think there has been adequate evidence given to the Chinese that no dumping has occurred. But, but nonetheless, let's assume those, those tariffs do come into play. Then the big question, particularly for Western Australian farmers, because we export most of our barley and China is our main export market. The issue is, well, where does that barley go? You know, assuming we have a favourable season that, that farmers don't hugely curtail their barley plantings and, and switch where they can out of barley into wheat, then where does that barley go? Because it, it can't go to China, not with the, the level of tariffs that are, are being muted. So that, that barley then has to go to other markets, the malt markets in Vietnam, there is the possibility of some of that barley going, and I'm sure Cheryl can talk about this more than I can, but there's the opportunity under the Indonesia-Australian SEPA agreement for half a million tonnes of feed grains to go duty-free into Indonesia. 
But the problem there, though, is that Indonesian main feed grain is corn. So the, the users of feed in Indonesia have a rich history of using feed wheat and corn. Unlike China, they're not very familiar with using barley. So it will take some time, I think, to educate the feed grain users in Indonesia how best to use Australian barley in their feed rations. So I think Indonesia will become eventually a strategically important feed market for Australian barley that can't enter the Chinese market. The other big feed market for barley is Saudi Arabia, but that's a tender-based lowest price and we're up against the feed barley emanating from Russia and Ukraine there with no great freight advantage. So I think it, it's going to be difficult for Australian farmers. They will receive lower prices um, because they're going to have to sell their barley into smaller malt markets and into feed markets that are already being saturated by corn. So, so that's, uh, that's a sobering story, particularly for West Australian farmers here. Unlike Eastern Australia, we don't have a lot of feedlot opportunities. We don't have big populations of cattle and sheep. Uh, we don't have a big domestic market, unlike Victoria, New South Wales or Queensland. So we need to export our barley. We can't put it down the gullet of millions of, of sheep or local cattle. And, and I think that's going to be a, a pretty bitter pill for some farm businesses to swallow. Very good. Good question, Lawrence. Uh, and thanks, uh, here, uh, Ross, for covering off on that. Um, look, a big topic, uh, Ross, to handle inside your 10 minutes, I think, uh, is, is really good. Are you able to hang around till the end? Sure. Uh, sure. Some questions at the end. That's fantastic. Okay, righty, I might switch over to Cheryl. How are you going, Cheryl? Hello. I'll share my screen now. So you're not Dougal? No, I'm not. Sorry, my husband's settings are on the Zoom here. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, look, um, you want to uh, yeah, put your slide presentation up now, if you like, Cheryl. Cheryl Gordon uh, is a senior analyst uh, with Rabobank. Uh, we all know Rabo a uh, really specialist in this uh, agricultural um, sector. And it's great to have uh, um, someone as senior as Cheryl um, along this presentation. We've given her a pretty easy topic though, uh, interest rates, exchange rates, and land values. Um, so um, I'm, I'm sure with your 10 minutes, you're gonna have uh, uh, everything ahead of you. Uh, Cheryl actually grew up in uh, Forbes and is currently based in Orange, so uh, a farm girl. Um, I'll hand it over to you, Cheryl. Thanks for that, Eric. And um, yeah, I'll get into that big topic of um, the the global ec economy and what COVID 19s um, you know doing in that space. I mean, for me personally, I'm just a few k's out of Orange. We've had more rain already this year than we had uh, the last couple of years, and uh, so it's a lovely place to be in isolation. But um, globally, um, there's a pretty big um, move um, and story um, that's already playing out very much so in many markets and is set to hang around for some time. So that's the unpleasantness um, of this um, globally. Um, but a bit like Ross, um, there's some uh, good news in this also. That does mean on the whole, we are of the view that ag can come through this um, fairly well. Um, and so if we turn firstly a bit to the um, virology of it, and hopefully my screen's gonna move along here. There we go. Um, you know, it's, it's actually been a huge um, and, and very fast moving um, occurrence, this pandemic. So it's actually only uh, four months since we um, looked at a situation where it was a Chinese um, uh, occurrence here. Um, the 30th of January, it was a very small part of the world, but um, increasingly and very quickly, it has become a global pandemic and the depth of the impact is what's also important. So we've got a very um, a widespread impact. No one's unscathed here. Um, and if you look at the scale with the, the red colours in the maps that I've got up here showing the extent of the restrictions, you know, not only do we have everyone impacted, but the restrictions are very deep. So the economic harm that is coming to play is, is um, 
is quite extraordinary. Um, and now we also have the length of the, um, the pandemic and these restrictions. And all of that is playing into severe economic damage. And of course, it's not the economic damage from the pandemic itself. Um, notwithstanding the fact that deaths and illness are extraordinarily um, tragic. Um, but the, the, um, the damage that is coming um, is really to do with the, the lockdowns and the, the attempts to um, minimise the damage of the virus globally. And that's coming to play um, mostly you know, and in the first round due to the collapse of things that are those discretionary items that um, uh, Ross talked about. It's, it's the tourism, it's the, the, the holidays, it's the entertainment, it's the hospitality and all based around the large events there. But notwithstanding also that there's the uh, restrictions on business travel. So those industries were sort of leading the forefront of where the impacts are really being felt globally. And of course, then there's the closure of non-essential industries and, um, you know, fortunately, in most places around the world, and certainly here in Australia, that notion that agriculture is absolutely essential has come into play. So um, we haven't certainly been um, shut down, but um, those sectors w which are seen to be something that you can hold off on um, will not... Um, undermine the day-to-day -day operation of families and, and people with, um, you know, keeping their lives running and, and operational in a um, uh, survival sense, um, have really taken that second round. And of course, there is the supply chain disruption that has happened in um, a number of places globally. Uh, very close, much close to home, um, our impact has been uh, a bit more limited and, and probably just limited to the impact of not being able to get enough containers to keep on moving um, products out, uh, out of China with those containers, whether it's um, refrigerated containers or just food grain containers not turning around quickly in, in the Chinese wave of, of the pandemic. Um, but more broadly, we're seeing huge disruptions to supply chains um, for meat um, in the US as a result of containment of um, the, the virus or people not being willing to put themselves in harm's way and so have been avoiding workplaces where um, pandemics have broken out. Um, we've also seen concern about disruption to ports um, in the movement of um, oil seeds uh, out of Brazil. Um, but these are the sorts of things that have been um, also leading to disruption and changes in economic um, and, and spending patterns globally. And of course, all of this, when people are out doing less, um, aren't um, moving their businesses along, and we do have supply chain disruptions, means that we have reduced trade and in many cases globally that has led to falling commodity prices and of course uh, Ross has mentioned um, what's been happening with um, the price of ethanol um, as a result of oil prices falling through the floor and going negative at one stage um, on a contract basis um, due to firstly um, the inability of Russia and Saudi Arabia to agree on output um, of oil but then that has been compounded and snowballed and really is being led now by the fact that people aren't flying, aren't using uh, transport fuels. And so we've seen um, those prices um, really plummeting too. And then finally, um, on those first wave um, impacts is really um, the uh, capital withdrawal from risky markets, especially um, emerging markets. Um, that, that idea that those become riskier in a world where people are taking a, a flight to safety with their capital um, is really going to be affecting um, those less well-developed countries and with an enduring impact here. And all of this leads, of course, then to reduce profits, pay cuts, reduced hours, job losses, and then less money to spend. And then it starts again. And um, so you get a cyclical and snowball effect of how this is playing out um, globally. We're all at different stages of this pandemic um, globally. And, and this is sort of where we start to think about what the recovery looks like. And if you think about where we're all, we are here in Australia on the recovery phase, we probably put us about um, towards the end where we're starting to think about opening up markets, not quite as well as advanced as China, but on that way, that recovery end, thinking about how do we open up schools? How do we get people out and about spending um, and you know, really kickstart the economy. But that's not the same for everyone. Um, 
you know, we've got the UK, Spain and Italy in the process um, of unwinding some of their restrictions, but they've had a much deeper impact than we have here in Australia. So that's a bit fraught. Um, if we then look a bit further afield, the US and the Philippines are two examples um, of, com uh, of countries where they're sort of halfway on their way to what we might consider a recovery phase, but could easily fall back into pandemic phase and the, the heightening of the um, need to risk um, you know, put restrictions back on. And of course, then we have other countries where um, either through um, non-reporting or um, the fact that they have received or you know the, the pandemic has arrived later are really at those early stages where they will be in much more of a lockdown situation they're still working out what those impacts on the economy will be and there's still the potential for this to be on a trajectory to much higher impacts for those guys globally we should note that there's a lot more countries that are still in this early phase of the pandemic as compared to those that are on the road to recovery. And mindful that any one of the countries on the right hand side that we're saying are on the road to recovery may actually have a second wave um, if the exit out of restrictions isn't managed um, well. All of this, the depth of the impact, the extent of the restrictions, um, the fact that this is, uh, you know, there's no country globally that's going to be unscathed by this, and now the, the length of the um, restrictions really means that we're easily in a situation where this is going to be much worse than the uh, global financial crisis in its impact. So if we think about where we've been with um, global growth, we did have a bit of a hiccup in 2019. At the time, it did seem like the end of the world, but that makes um, what we're going to see this year look like um, perhaps, um, you know, just uh, falling over and grazing your knee because right now we're looking at um, the negative growth for the economy being um, about 26 percent um, as, a, as a negative in um, 2020. So we consider that anything about less than 2.7 is a recession. So to go to negative by the same degree is a disastrous outcome for the global economy. Um, for Australia here, we're very exposed to China. So looking at what has happened um, and we expect to happen there is equally valid. So of course, we've been very fortunate to have that exposure whilst China has had um, excellent growth and been really leading global growth um, over the last 20 or so years. But at this point, we're looking at um, them moving to a situation where they will still have positive growth, but really much below where um, they have been tracking, notwithstanding they were on a slowing phase, but this is a real chunk out of their growth pattern um, uh, here in 2021. Now then, we I mentioned we were thinking about the recovery. Well, you know, it is going to be um, a recovery that is going to be marked by some really strong performances um, uh, in some places around the world. And in China, that's um, realistically on the cards with something like 5.9% um, growth expected for 2021. And so that is a good news story um, that some economies will really be able to bounce back. Um, however, um, not all um, countries will be in that case where the bounce back is strong and able to offset the downside of 2020. So um, in this map, I've put together um, the net two-year growth. So um, a lot of people are looking out there and seeing that the IMF is um, you know, uh, forecasting some really nice um, figures in the high, um, you know, five to six or five, uh, up to 10% growth in 2021. But when you net that out about the, uh, with the losses of um, 2020, you see that there's only a couple of nations around the world that are actually going to have net growth over the period. Um, and notably, China, India and Korea are those exceptions um, which is, you know, thinking about our exposure and our future is pretty important to keep in mind. So lots of countries will have positive growth and, and fairly significant in 2021, but there's only a few that will have net growth over this period. So it's really holding the whole world back um, and, and only a couple will come out, um, you know, with a higher growth outlook.
Um, but of course, if we come back to the here and the now, the impacts have already been pretty severe. And if we look at um, the US and, and the non-ag um, non commodities index that we've um, put into place and how things have moved since the period when the first cases um, came to bear um, globally, we've seen that the um, Brent crude oil, as I uh, said earlier, has really has really tanked, not only because of COVID-19, but also because of other factors in this on the supply side. But this is a real indicator leading um, to the growth prospects um, internationally. Um, the US um, generic government 10-year index uh, there also shows um, a real um, indicator of the future and the, the growth prospects over the longer term less negative and having a little bit of a, a resurgence after a, a bit of a dive there is the Dow Jones Industrial Index, which is, you know, much more trading on the short-term sentiment of, of Trump tweets, if you will. Um, in terms of ag commodities, we've also seen these um, moving down. Now, these are denominated, this is US um, dollar ag commodities, uh, denominated ag commodities on an index basis again. And as you can see, there's an overall trend um, downwards. Um, but what's interesting to note here is how fragile and um, reactive some of these prices are at the moment. So if you look at the light blue line at the top there, that's the uh, this, uh, CME wheat and we saw the real reaction there to global stockpiling of wheat as some of the uh, countries um, set out um, their governments to ensure supplies and lots of commercial players too. Um, and then has come back down um, since then. Uh, the dotted brown line is um, US imported cow meat price, which is really um, a reaction this, um, this last month. You can see it's tipped up there after initial declines due to the supply chain issues that they've been having in the US where we're getting this real widening between the price of processed meat that can, consumers can actually purchase and the price of um, live animals um, that can't be slaughtered and so are in many cases is being euthanized and or um, you know put out to pasture or, or slow fed um, and of course wool there um, as Ross mentioned earlier is um, really um, having a really sorry um, out um, take from all of this not only um, is the demand there on the just on the, um, the discretionary side it's, it's just not there but um, the relative cost of alternatives like um, polyester um, that very much falls when you've got low oil prices plus you've got China very much interested in trying to meet um, its phase one trade deal um, uh, commitments, so buying more cotton um, from the US. So, so wool's on that very negative side and getting lots of fallout, unfortunately, from this. Um, but that was US denominated prices. We are um, getting some shelter from the depreciation that we've seen of the Australian dollar. And of course, you know, when the virus really spread and, and the risk appetite was taken off the table, Australia was seen as a poor bet. And so we really did see um, a jump well below um, 60 cents. And um, for anybody um, that's been watching swap markets, that coincided with a bit of stockpiling and saw those swaps go to 350. And that was a bit exciting. Um, but of course, it's it's, it's come back now um, with uh, optimism on China and Australia, the way Australia is dealing with the um, you know the management of the pandemic, and then also risk appetite just rising generally, um, taking leads from US equities. Our view, and to cover rough on the, the first remit for tonight is what's happening with the dollar, we expect a correction. We think there's um, overbuilt or in, uh, optimism in the current trading of the Australian dollar, so that we will see a correction that brings it down this year to closer to that 60 cent um, mark and then falling into a 62 cent by um, next year. And that's gonna be really important in um, securing um, better pricing for Australian commodities this year and really providing a bit of that shelter for Australian farmers. Um, I've got all of your pictures here in front of my um, right-hand side of my slide, but suffice to say um, the US dollar is not the only um, 
uh, currency that we need to be concerned about here. So if we're looking at different markets, we need to be concerned about how we're trading relative to uh, the US dollar, but then also our trade weighted index um, and then competitors, um, uh, the likes of Brazil. And of course, we haven't been able to hold a, a a torch to the depreciation that Brazil has made um, over this period and the gains they've therefore made in terms of competitiveness globally. So um, the depreciation is valuable and useful, but in terms of competitiveness into some markets, it's not everything that we should be looking at. All right, so interest rates. Um, we are at record lows and um, the this is expected to say stay this way for some time and in fact we um, don't have a forecast for them um, rising um, again and that's a lot to do with the fact that we will be coming out of this um, uh, the, the uh, recession with excess production capacity high unemployment and not a, a case for inflation or any um, case for putting up rates. Um, so we'll have a situation where the RBA is hamstrung for some time in moving um, that rate up. Now we do expect that there will be some um, challenge on the wholesale um, market funding costs and rise on that side due to the riskiness um, in the market. But notwithstanding that, this will mean that um, rates are going to stay at um, relatively relative lows for a prolonged period. So that's the second bit of good news. The first is um, that we expect the Australian dollar to maintain um, these lower levels. The second is that interest rates don't have a trajectory on the up. And um, then uh, that sort of, if we pull all that together, we expect that Australia should largely weather the storm. The positives in this situation should outweigh the negatives, with the positives being that we do come in, and so I'm talking here in prices, with relatively low stocks. So we aren't burdened with massive sheep flocks. Um, we, don't, we have low cattle numbers. Um, we don't have excess supplies, certainly on a national basis, of grains, and so we're looking to rebuild there. So that's a Positive. We have got this lower dollar. Globally, there's still um, demand for proteins that we feed um, with grains here in Australia. So the swine fever has taken such a massive chunk out of that global protein market, um, but that's still got to be playing into Australia's um, positive outlook um, on this regard. And we do think that there's a place for Australia to um, be able to improve its image as a reliable supplier in this um, so far. We haven't had any supply chain disruptions and um, we have been able to continue to supply our markets regardless of what's been going on. On the negatives, we certainly um, have had some logistical disruption in terms of inputs. Um, we do see that there'll be falling incomes that will reduce demand for things like high-end beef and um, beer and wool. Um, and we do see that there's the impact of contracting of the contracting food service. But on balance, we should come out um, in fairly um, in fairly good form as a result. Um, and that's going to play into a situation where we don't think there's going to be a massive correction on land prices as a result of um, this, this epidemic um, or pandemic. Um, so if we look at what happened in the GFC, um, we did get a small reduction there in land prices. And we certainly through, saw through the drought um, in the early 2010s, um, we saw land prices move down. But post-drought, we've seen since that point um, uh, a movement up. So we had already forecast that the market would lose steam in 2020 and 21. Um, but there are a number of factors that mean that we don't see a massive correction as a result of COVID-19. Operating, operating profits on the whole should be okay. Interest rates um, are, are relatively low. Foreign investment appetite remains and other assets really look much less pretty in this situation than ag assets um, at this point. So that should all bode well for it. So we will have a severe reset, global recession. The recovery will be slow. The dollar where it's at at the moment, we expect that to unwind and that's going to provide some shelter for us um, in our pricing. Um, the official cash rate will be low for years and that will help keep um, our interest rates low, we should largely weather the storm and that'll help insulate from the, a major correction on land prices. 
Note though, as I finish off, downside risks are absolutely a, uh, a reappreciation of the Australian dollar. And if we find ourselves back at up at 77 or 75 cents, this, this story changes. Um, if we have um, lockdowns in all of our key markets extend, that global those global growth prospects really do um, get deeper um, and harder to get out um, on the other side. And if we do have those second round infections. Um, in any of those recovery markets, including here in Australia, um, we'll need to reassess this. But at this point, this is where we're looking um, at those key factors of land, interest rates and the dollar. Thanks, Eric. Awesome. Thanks, uh, Cheryl. Um, oh, sorry, Cheryl. Uh, the, um, look, we're running a little bit over time. Um, so if I've got uh, questions, anyone, uh, just load them into the uh, chat box and we'll tackle them. Uh, at the end, um, our last uh, speaker uh, we'll just introduce you to is uh, May Connolly. Uh, May is a member of our grain marketing team in uh, Western Australia based at Esperance. Um, she's uh, quite well known in the Twitter sphere. Um, and I think she's had a few late nights trying to keep on top of the barley situation. So uh, May, I'll hand it over to you. How should we manage our grain marketing strategy uh, this year? Thanks, Eric. Uh, can you see the slide? Yes. No worries. Uh, evening, everyone. Uh, so first of all, uh, just a bit of housekeeping. I need to uh, give you our general advice disclaimer. So the Mango Marketing Holder Financial Services Licence, uh, which lets us talk to you about futures and currency um, and other derivatives like that. Um, so anything... It's not a presentation mode, yep. I've been told that we can't see the full view, so why I try stopping that share and try that one again. There we go. Uh, does that look like the full screen now? Yep. Yep, no worries. Uh, you just wanted to interrupt my boring housekeeping, didn't you? Um, okay, so uh, so anything we say tonight is just general advice. Uh, before you go and act on it, make sure um, that it does suit your individual circumstances. Um, so just a couple of uh, key drivers in the market at the moment. Uh, obviously, uh, the C word, coronavirus. Uh, what impact is that going to have on demand? Uh, longer term, uh, demand is usually something we don't focus a lot on when we're talking about grain marketing. Uh, you know, we're always talking about supply shocks and droughts here and frost there, um, and the demand is just kind of a slow, steady, boring creep upwards. But uh, yeah, certainly demand uh, is going to be on the radar. So, um, you know, we uh, at the end of the day, food is going to be the last thing cut from budgets around the world. But um, you know, if it does get really bad, especially in some poorer countries. Countries, will they be able to afford to buy um, our, our produce from us? Um, and just the, the changes in demand. So, you know, things like on one hand, uh, oil seeds, we're seeing increased demand for canola because it's something that you use in home cooking. Um, whereas on the other side of the equation, we've seen a massive crash in uh, pork belly futures. They are a thing uh, because pork belly is something you eat in restaurants, not something you eat at home. Um, so, yeah, some fascinating changes in demand. Um, the, the economic um, um, information um, that we've gone through tonight, um, I guess, relating that back to grain marketing, historically, soft commodities do, do not do well in recessions. So, um, hopefully, uh, hopefully, as has been forecast, the, uh, the dip is uh, not, too, not too deep and, and not too long. Um, uh, so, government interventions uh, could also be another fascinating outcome um, from coronavirus. So what we mean by that is, uh, let's, say, uh, let's say the outbreak gets really bad in Russia, they get concerned about their food security um, as they have before and they shut down wheat exports. Um, you know, we, we will therefore have astronomical wheat prices pretty quickly if that happens. So, so government interventions and certainly food security has been something um, dis discussed a lot more over coronavirus uh, than, than it has been for, for a long time. Uh, 
uh, and just the need to keep supply chains open. So, you know, from our point of view, it doesn't matter what the world price is, um, could be, wheat could be 500 bucks a tonne, it's meaningless unless we can actually get our, our grain um, from, from our farms um, to our export markets. And overall, coronavirus has just added so, so much uncertainty to markets. Um, getting back to um, fundamentals, so uh, conditions. Uh, this is just an overview of global um, crop conditions uh, as of about a week ago. Um, I find this is a really good overview. You know, in market-wise, you're always hearing these little flashes, like you know, it's it's dry in Russia. Oh, the whole of Europe's cold. There's been a frost in the US, and uh, you know, we. we tend to sometimes think that, you know, that means that the whole whole world crop is stuffed. Um, so I think this is really good at uh, um, a good resource to, uh, to uh, uh, just come back to the overall bigger picture. So basically when you're looking at this, uh, red and orange are bad, um, green is good, and you know, there's certainly not, not massive areas of crop failure out there this year. The yellow is watch, which means there's a few issues at the moment, but plenty of time for them to be sorted out. Um, things would have to get a lot worse for those crops to be badly affected. So at this stage, um, we're looking like, uh, you know, yet again, another decent world crop. And, you know, really it's been since 2012, eight years since we had a massive um, global production issue that was big enough to push up prices. So um, at this stage, we're not looking like the supply side is going to give us a price rally, um, but the, ne the next month or so will be really critical to that. There is still time for it to happen. Um, another big influence on prices, uh, crude oil, um, as, as Ross um, ran through. Um, this chart absolutely uh, terrifies me in, in terms of price outlook at the moment. Uh, so the blue line is Chicago Board of Trade, soccer regulatory um, wheat futures, uh, and the black line is Brent crude oil futures. So um, the, the correlation is very strong. Uh, so this is going back over the last 20 years. So. Generally, um, if you have a correlation of 80% or higher, that's considered a very strong correlation. Um, the higher, the better. Um, and the correlation between wheat futures and these Brent crude oil futures over the last 20 years has been 83%. Um, so just recently, we've had that big crash in crude oil futures, uh, but wheat futures have held on remarkably well so far. Um, maybe I'm a glass half empty kind of person, but uh, that drop off in crude without wheat futures falling uh, just uh, makes me worry about where, where, where wheat futures might head because of that strong correlation. Another correlation I'm concerned about is between wheat and corn. Um, so these are Chicago Board of Trade corn and wheat futures. Um, going back, so green corn, uh, blue wheat, again, very strong correlation. We've seen crude oil, sorry, we've seen corn futures collapse in recent times due to the crude oil issue, due to coronavirus. Um, but we haven't seen wheat, um, but you know, over, over time history would suggest that uh, corn will be a drag on wheat sooner or later, unless something can happen in the wheat market to, to support it separately. Uh, looking at barley, uh, yep, another C word, China. Um, so obviously with those tariffs are not going to be good news for barley, but you know, we have another week uh, before that final determination is in place. So um, I think it's, it's not the time to panic over the next week. Let's wait and see exactly what the outcome's going to be. Um, and then we can plan it from there. Certainly in WA at least, there are hectares moving out of barley um, towards wheat. It's also had a knock, an unfortunate knock-on effect. Um, the talk of barley area also moving to oats has collapsed the oat price here in WA today. You know, oats is a really small market. Uh, you know, uh, you know, 50,000 hectares of barley moving towards oats, and suddenly the oat market's completely oversupplied because it is such a small industry. So. Um, yep, yeah, so that that barley um, is is going to be a um, uh, yeah. We'll we'll know more um, came, come May the nineteenth. So last slide. Um, what do we do? What is our strategy um, coming out of all all of these influences on price at the moment? Um, so as I said at the start, like the big thing with the coronavirus is just the uncertainty involved. So no one knows. Uncertainty is the only certainty. 
So in that kind of really uncertain, risky environment, I think it's important to uh, just be sensible, for want of a better word. Um, stick to your long-term grain marketing plan. If you're someone that you know you sells 30% of your wheat at seeding when prices are reasonable, there's no reason to not do that this year. There's no reason to sell a lot less wheat. There's also not a, not a reason to sell a whole lot more wheat and take on big production risks. So whatever your long-term grain marketing plan is that works for you, um, important to stick to that th through these uncertain times. Keep current prices in perspective. Uh, wheat and canola prices in WA are still decile nine levels. So historically very strong um, and a few of those slides scare me uh, with the price outlook, particularly for wheat. So if they scare you, there are still some very good uh, wheat and canola prices available. Take advantage of those opportunities. Uh, volatility is our friend in grain marking. Um, it can be our enemy when it pushes prices down lower than they should be. But at the moment, that volatility over the last month or two has certainly given us some pricing opportunities. So recognise those opportunities when they come along. Never take on more production risk um, than, than you're comfortable with. Um, and last point, look over the horizon. So the volatility of these pricing opportunities and keeping your long-term plan in mind, you know what prices are profitable for you, you know what a good price is. Um, don't just look at prices for this year, there's been opportunities um, for the next two to three years as well, particularly um, using swap products. Uh, so that was it, um, unless anyone has any questions and uh, yeah, uh, good luck with uh, with the with the season. Hopefully, uh, we've got a few uh, hurdles to deal with between coronavirus and barley, but uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, rain uh, is is uh, less of an issue than it has been for the last couple of years. Cheers. Awesome. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, May. Um, yeah, uh, I'm not sure with all these things whether we're supposed to be, uh, you know happy about the outlook or, or fearful as hell, uh, but things are uncertain, obviously. So it's just a matter of, just say, sticking to your plan and, and working through and thinking through and making sure you're after the prices. Um, right, uh, look, um, thanks for organising that um, and finishing on time. Look, have we got uh, any questions uh, in the chat, uh, Ben? I did have Carly's comment earlier on about barley uh, may, but I think, um, have you dealt with that? Have you got anything particularly you want to say about what's happening in the barley market at the minute, or we got to wait and see what happens in the next couple of days? Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, we'll, we'll know the final answer on barley on May the 19th is the deadline. So um, I think, you know, if you're if you're a barley buyer, you're certainly not going to be keen on buying it until that's certain. So I think absolutely growers should um, follow the same principle. Let's just wait till we know exactly what we're what we're dealing with, um, you know, in terms of price immediately, the, the horse is bolted. <laughs> you, you, you know, yeah, you can't really sell barley. Um, it's, it's, it's too late at the moment, but until we know exactly what China's gonna do and, and for how long, importantly, you know, these tariffs, if they come in, they're not gonna go on forever. So potentially we can work our grain marketing around a certain time period um, with the barley issue. So yeah, I think let's just wait for certainty from, um, from China by the 19th. Uh, Cheryl, um, the obviously uh, interest rates are very flat and low. Should I be thinking about hedging a portion of my debt because you know obviously long-term rates must be looking uh, fairly reasonable? Uh, look on on that side, yeah, you've got a, a nice uh, long-term trajectory there, and um, looking to hedge. I think um, most people are setting in themselves with um, with staying in that uh, just that front market and uh, writing it out. Very good, radio. Thanks for that. Much appreciated. Um, look, there's no more questions in the chat. There's a lot of guys online. Uh, look, um, has anyone else got anything uh, they'd like to ask? Oh, I've never come across such a shy bunch in my life. Um, but no, obviously, uh, look, our speakers have covered the areas very well. I know it's a, it's a pretty tough brief uh, to cover um, such a, a diverse area in such a short um, presentation time frame. I really appreciate you know, the quality of the, of the guys we have here. They're just very hard to get a hold of. Uh, you fellas uh, sometimes, obviously, because you, you're just busy. There's a lot going on. So we really do appreciate um, yeah, you making your time available, available to us, uh, especially since it's late at night, especially Cheryl for you. 
um, and obviously our uh, Eastern States fellas. So um, thanks for making the time. Uh, look, have a safe run uh, through uh, the rest of your seating. I know there's a couple of you just probably just about finished, so that would be nice. Um, but yeah, hope the rest of you have a safe run and uh, thanks for making the time uh, to, to sort of sit in tonight. Very good. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Oh, there's a few people hanging around there I recognise, so goodbye, evening, travel well. How are you going there, mate?